Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? It's time for the tech news for Tuesday, October 11th. 2022. Let's get to it. Today, Meta will hold its Connect conference, and folks are expecting that Mark Zuckerberg will give an update as to the whole journey to the metaverse thing. And part of that will be unveiling of the high-end VR gear that has been called Project Cambria, internally anyway. We expect it'll probably be called Something else when it's released, the the going bet now is it's going to be the Quest Pro. By the time you hear this, you might very well know that already. Uh, because I'm recording this before the conference happens, I'm not sure what features this new VR device is going to have, but the guess is that it's going to have higher resolution experiences. It's going to incorporate eye tracking. That can go from interesting to creepy real quick. And it might have some other mixed reality features built into it, uh, as in like, hey, you got augmented reality in my virtual reality. Hey, you got virtual reality in my augmented reality. Say, that kind of thing. 
Anyway, we don't know the details. We don't know how expensive this thing's going to be. But since Meta not too long ago hiked the price of the two Quest 2 models, there's a base model and a slightly better model, those prices went up by $100 each. Uh, they currently cost $399 and $499, respectively. And my guess is that Project Cambria will be fairly expensive. Considering that Meta has had a really bad year this year, I can't imagine that they're going to try and sell this at a massive loss. The company has been dealing with scandals. It's seen a decline in its user base. It's been trying and largely failing to fight off TikTok's appeal to younger users. It's been reeling from Apple's move to give iOS users the ability to cut off app tracking, which has really hurt their advertising model. Uh, it's seen its stock price go down over the year by more than 60%, like more than $100 per share. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks over at Meta who feel the company really needs a win. So maybe that's what we'll get later today. Uh, the conference begins at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, as I'm recording this, it's about an hour away. So I'm sure I'll have a lot more to talk about on Thursday's episode. The New York Times published an article titled, quote, Skepticism, Confusion, Frustration, Inside Mark Zuckerberg's Metaverse Struggles, end quote. And this piece sheds some light on how folks inside the company are frustrated and confused by Zuckerberg's push toward all things metaverse. Uh, the Times quotes several folks, many of them unnamed because they didn't want to put their jobs at risk, which is totally understandable. Uh, one investor that the Times quoted was a guy named Matthew Ball, who I think rightfully pointed out that while Zuckerberg is focusing on the metaverse, the problems that Meta is facing right now are not necessarily directly metaverse-related, apart from the fact that the company is investing billions into something that's still many years away. I think Ball's point is that Zuckerberg is failing to address the real-world problems that Meta has encountered this year, which means not only is Zuckerberg looking at something that doesn't fix the issues that the company currently faces, those issues are also getting worse because the attention is on this metaverse stuff. The piece also reports that several employees in Meta are frustrated with Zuckerberg changing his mind about projects and rapidly demanding changes. Uh, they say that the most important project is MMH, which is Make Mark Happy. Obviously, this whole approach disrupts processes and makes them really fail to make a lot of progress. The piece also mentions that Zuckerberg has been urging Meta teams to hold virtual meetings within the company's Horizon Workrooms app, and that was a huge inconvenience for a lot of employees because they had not purchased a VR headset or had one set up. So it sent lots of folks scrambling in order to catch up. Also, by the way, just on a side note, yuck. I mean, if, if my boss told me that I needed to buy a $400 or $500 piece of equipment just so that I could attend work meetings, I'd be pretty angry about that. Hopefully those employees will get reimbursed for having to purchase VR equipment just to attend meetings or something. The Times piece also says that an internal poll of Meta of 1,000 employees revealed that less than 60% of them felt they really understood the company's metaverse strategy. So still more than half say they understand it, but like more than 40% say, I don't really get it. Now at the very least, I, I would think that reveals a problem with internal communications. It's very hard to be a trailblazer if the folks on your team don't understand where they're trying to go to. 
again, maybe the conference later today will indicate that the company has addressed some of these issues. We'll have to wait and see. Or you won't. You probably have already heard about it. Let's pop on over to YouTube next. Uh, the platform is making yet another change when it comes to users and their accounts. YouTube sent out emails to YouTube account holders and released an announcement that says the platform will soon switch to at name style handles, much like other social platforms like Twitter. So users who have a channel, they'll be able to secure a unique handle that applies across the platform. So this handle feature will allow users to mention others in stuff like video titles and comments. So let's say you decide to do a YouTube video about how awesome I am. You could tag me in the title of your video and I would be aware that it existed. And because you're appealing to my ego, I would likely promote that video because I want people to know how awesome I am. Now, I'm not saying you should do this, by the way. Specifically, don't do this with me because my social reach is pathetically small because I'm almost never on social these days, so it won't do you any good. But if you try it with folks who have a large active following, I don't know, maybe it could work. Maybe you just irritate them. You just don't know. Anyway, the at feature can be useful for community engagement, though it can also be irritating as heck if it's misused, but that is the way of things. I find this change interesting because back when Google Plus was still a thing, Google was really pushing to require everyone to use their real legal name across Google platforms, and that included Google Plus and YouTube. So this motivation for this push came from a relatively good place. Like, it wasn't just that they wanted to force you to use your real name. The idea was that if you hold people accountable by making them use their real names, then they're going to be more careful about the stuff they say online. And you would see a big decrease in stuff like abuse and trolling. But it was very clear that the company had not considered a lot of other issues that come along with forcing people to use their real names. Here's a, a relatively benign example. There are a lot of popular YouTube personalities who are known by a sort of stage name or a handle. And if you force them to change to their real name, that kind of messes with branding. It also poses as a potential privacy and security risk. Anyway, YouTube throughout their history has really followed a rocky course when it comes to how we identify users and channels on the site. They've gone back and forth between being able to use handles, being able to use real names. Um, and these new handles aren't actually going to rename anything. Instead, in theory, it'll make it easier to interact with other users on the platform because you can tag them. Securing handles looks like it's going to be a first-come, first-served approach once it opens up. But YouTube is also going to reach out to some channels in advance to give them the opportunity to secure their handle before the general public can rush in and grab them up, which makes sense. You don't want uh, someone rushing in to grab Jacksepticeye before Sean gets a chance to do it. I call him Sean, even though I've never talked to him and he doesn't know who I am. But anyway, that's an example, right? You wouldn't want someone to, to do the, the equivalent of website squatting or URL squatting on these handles. So those channels are going to get the first chance to do it. Uh, don't know what the criteria is going to be for that. I assume it's going to be like the checkmarked folks first and then maybe open up to others after that. We'll have to see. 
This past weekend was TwitchCon, which was an in-person convention relating to Twitch streamers and their fan bases. I got a couple of different things to say about this. One is that Twitch has been in the hot seat of criticism from creators recently, primarily because of the company's revenue strategy. There have been a lot of times where streamers have criticized Twitch for lots of different things. For example, for uh, somewhat vague and uneven application of content standards, where some people say it appears that certain folks get a pass for publishing content that other folks get reprimanded for. That's one example. But the one that has been and in the focus more recently has to do with revenue split. So until very recently, Twitch had a revenue split for almost all Twitch streamers that was 50-50. That means that streamers would get 50% of revenue coming from subscriptions and Twitch would get the rest. There are other ways that Twitch makes revenue from these things and that streamers make revenue from these things as well. But that's really kind of the focus. Now, certain streamers who were kind of viewed as top performers and thus likely to attract more people to joining Twitch, they got a special treatment. They got a 70-30 split. So Twitch would only take 30% of their revenue and the streamer would get to keep 70. But that was like this small elite group. And that's actually much closer to the kind of revenue split strategies we see in other online platforms. But late last month, Twitch said that any remaining 70-30 streamers out there will also get switched to a 50-50 arrangement once they earn $100,000 as a threshold. And for those elite streamers, that's going to be a big setback. Going from a 70% take to a 50% take is tough. And while we have yet to see how this is all going to play out, it's safe to say there are some Twitch streamers upset with this change. Now, maybe they'll try and offset it by incorporating more advertising in their streams, because if you have more ads, then you generate more revenue. So you can make up for the fact that you are getting a smaller cut of the revenue you generate by putting in more ads. But if you put in more ads, then you might push away Twitch viewers. They might get fed up with how many ads there are compared to the amount of content they're getting. But anyway, let's talk about TwitchCon particularly, because the big story coming out of TwitchCon isn't about Twitch's policies. It had to do with some really unfortunate injuries that were incurred by, let's call them enthusiastic streamers who leapt into a a foam pit. That is a pit that had foam blocks, like the kind of blocks you would use for packing material, right? Those dark, like charcoal gray foam blocks, that kind of thing. Um, and that pit proved to be far too shallow. And since this was all done in a venue with concrete floor, it meant that some folks got hurt. A few of them seriously injured. One of those was streamer Adriana Chechik, who, after landing in the pit, said she was unable to get up and she ultimately got some medical attention. And she has since said that she broke her back in two places and is going to undergo surgery to insert a metal rod into her spine to correct for the damage. The foam pit was part of an American Gladiators type attraction. It was sponsored by Lenovo and Intel, and it was subsequently shut down after numerous injuries. And on a personal note, I just want to say, I hope the various folks who got injured in that pit have a swift recovery. And to all those websites out there that used animated GIFs to show the moments where folks got injured, 
gross. Next time, just make it a playable video. I did not want to actually see people get hurt. Um, that kind of stinks. And I really hope that the hurt people get well soon. That's obviously the most important part. All right. Speaking of advertising, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got some more news items. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. You know, I've talked a lot on this show about how remote work has really changed things for employees, how they are 
reluctant to go back to working in the office, which is totally understandable. Like if you are able to do your job effectively at home, there are a lot of good reasons to do it that way, right? You're not driving all the time or otherwise commuting. You know, you you can really be efficient and you can stay in the comfort of your home. You can help look after your family. There are a lot of good reasons. But I've also talked about how some companies and managers are not crazy about remote work, partly because it makes it harder to monitor employees. It's weird because like every study you see about this kind of stuff shows how that approach demoralizes employees, which ultimately means you hurt the bottom line. Employees don't do as good a job if they're not happy. And yet we still see this happening. Like, like it's, it's like a teacher having to watch over a classroom to make sure no one's cheating during a pop quiz. You don't feel great if you feel like your boss is treating you like a misbehaving child. Anyway, there's one recent story that really caught my eye that kind of turned things around on a company that was doing this sort of thing. A Florida-based company called Chetu hired a remote telemarketer. This telemarketer was based in the Netherlands. Now, according to a subsequent lawsuit that the telemarketer brought against Chetu, the company managers ordered him to activate his webcam and to keep it on throughout the entirety of his workday. They also demanded that he screen share his screen the entire time. And the telemarketer politely declined to acquiesce to the company's request, and Chetu then fired this telemarketer. So then he sued the company. And like I said, this guy is based in the Netherlands. So a Dutch court took up the case. And y'all, we don't treat things like privacy that seriously here in the United States, but they sure as heck do in Europe, and the Netherlands in particular. So the court found that the company was being unreasonable, and that the company's demands on the employee were, quote, in conflict with the respect for the privacy of the workers, end quote, which it'd be very hard to agree, to, to argue against, rather, and that, that the company far overstepped the boundaries that an employer has when it comes to its employees. So this Dutch court found in favor of the telemarketer. They said this was a case of unfair dismissal. And as a result, the court has ordered Chetu to pay the telemarketer's court costs, to pay his back wages, to pay a fine of $50,000, and it has to drop the non-compete clause from the telemarketer's employment agreement. And whether any of this happens or not, I don't know. Chetu did not show up for the court case. Again, I'm not shocked. But I imagine this will at least make companies a little less eager to hire telemarketers in the Netherlands, right? Or teleworkers in general, as well as other places that are like in the EU, for example, where you have governments and regulatory agencies that take stuff like privacy seriously. And uh, uh, honestly, I think that the requirement of having the webcam turned on was unreasonable from the get-go. I think it's unreasonable for any company to demand that at least as a general rule, I think it's unreasonable. So hopefully we see stories like this that convince companies not to follow those kinds of uh, tactics. Uh, it, it might take a while for that to really filter through to all the different companies in the United States, because again, we're in a country that does not traditionally value or protect privacy to any great extent. Yesterday, CNN decided to sunset its vault project. So this was an NFT initiative that CNN launched uh, last year. And, and uh, the news company was minting NFTs 
that were tied to real-world events and headlines. So the pitch that CNN gave to investors was that you could purchase an NFT and own a piece of history. You could own a headline, a, a moment of newsworthy activity, which I find absolutely laughable. I find it ludicrous because really what you end up owning is a digital token that at least in theory represents this thing, but it, it's just a digital token. It's a token that can be traded or sold on a digital marketplace, but it's not like you actually own a moment. Like, like let's say there's a moment where Celebrity A totally dissed Celebrity B at a public event or whatever, and you're like, done, I need to own that. I need to own the moment where Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine or whatever it was. And so you buy an NFT that represents that headline. You don't actually own anything other than a token. <laughs> anyway, none of that stopped people from buying NFTs because as we have established in other episodes, NFTs, especially early on, were really seen as a potential cash grab, both for the markets that were minting NFTs and for the people who were buying them. It was like a speculative market. And you could think of it as like a long shot bet. You might think, all right, well, each individual NFT is not that expensive. Maybe it's 20 bucks or something for the cheap ones. That's not terrible. And if it turns out that this one is going to end up being a seven digit item on a marketplace, then I'm going to make a huge profit from a small investment. Of course, I'm going to be tempted to do that. But since those days, obviously, the crypto market has taken a real dive. Across multiple blockchains, we have seen cryptocurrencies and NFT values plummet. And uh, more and more people have expressed skepticism or just outright dismissal of NFTs. And some folks who are invested in the vault are now talking about talking with lawyers, potentially bringing lawsuits against CNN and accusing the company of pulling the rug out from investors, a, a so-called rug pull. So a rug pull is when someone sets up a project and gets investors involved in the project and then subsequently cancels the project and then runs off with the cash. That's a rug pull, right? Where you've set up this scheme where you can convince a lot of people to pour money in early on and then you take the money and run. Well, CNN has said that's not the case and it's planning to compensate investors by paying out the purchase price of NFTs that investors were holding as captured on October 6th. So if you bought an NFT like a year ago, uh, you don't get the value of the NFT that you paid for at the point of purchase. You, you get whatever it was worth on October 6th of this year. So CNN estimates that means folks are going to recapture around 20% of what they invested in because, as I mentioned earlier, crypto had a really bad time of it this year and the value of stuff like NFTs has taken a nosedive. It also gets worse. Marketplaces have processing fees. So if you want to extract your money from an investment on these marketplaces, you have to pay a processing fee in, in, as part of that. Well, the marketplace that CNN used was connected to the Flow blockchain, and the Flow blockchain has a $4 processing fee for transactions. So let's say you bought one NFT from CNN. Let's say it was a $20 NFT. Well, you're only going to get 20% of that value back, right? That's all you're going to get. Uh, so one-fifth of what you paid 
and you paid 20 bucks. Well, one fifth means you would get $4 back, but you also have to pay a processing fee if you want to withdraw your money from the marketplace. That processing fee is also $4, which means you get nothing. You, you get no money back because of the reduction in the purchase price and that processing fee on top of it. This is another reason why lots of critics of NFTs uh, point at NFTs as being dangerous and, and not a good investment because on top of everything else, you've got these processing fees that eat into any profit you might make and you are not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination to make a profit in the first place. So it may mean that you get even less back out if you decide that you don't want to be invested in the market anymore. Last week, six robotics companies, including Boston Dynamics, signed a pledge stating that these companies are not going to develop robots that can harm humans. And the companies also urged other robotics companies to follow suit. And there's been a lot of talk about robotics and how they could be put to military use. Uh, a lot of early ones, including at Boston Dynamics, were talked about as sort of a load-bearing device that could help carry heavier equipment in the field for military. So kind of like a mule that it would be carrying this stuff, not necessarily weaponized itself, but it might carry weapons that, you know, other soldiers can can take off of it and use. But there's also been conversations about weaponized platforms, whether paired with a human operator who works remotely to actually fire the weapons, or even an autonomous system that would have stuff like image recognition capabilities that would be capable of engaging in combat. So you could have a, a combat-ready weaponized robotics platform. And that thought is really scary, particularly because we know that computer vision isn't even close to perfect. You know, we've seen so many stories of computer systems misidentifying people or having a bias against specific populations because the computer models themselves are faulty. We've seen that over and over again. Now, imagine such an imperfect system armed with a gun so that not only is this a deadly weapon, it's one that could misidentify targets. Uh, it could identify something as a target that's not a target at all, and that leads to tragedy. Uh, also, there's a fear that if you have robot soldiers, is what it really amounts to, that you would be less uh, reluctant to engage in combat because obviously you're not putting people, your people, in harm's way. You're using equipment. So there's a fear that this could lead to increased aggression around the world. It's a very sobering idea. So these companies stress that their robotic platforms could have significant positive use cases. Like they could really help contribute to lots of human endeavors. But if robotics companies agree to weaponize their platforms, that will in turn undermine any efforts to make robots for peaceful applications because it erodes trust and it encourages fear. So people will be less likely to invest in robotics companies that could be making stuff that could really make positive changes in peaceful ways because there are these other companies that are making kill bots, essentially. Uh, I'm really on the same page. As these companies, I think that this is the responsible thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do. But whether we see this spread throughout the entire robotics industry or not, I just don't know. 
Russian-speaking hackers have managed to take down more than a dozen airport websites yesterday morning, including the site for my home airport, Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Now, the hackers appear to be aligned with the Russian government, meaning their motivations appear to be based off uh, what the Russian government is doing. But it's unknown whether or not they have any sort of state sponsor relationship with the government. It may be that they are acting completely independently. Uh, In that case, they would be acting more like Anonymous does. It could be a loose group of hackers that choose their own targets, and they don't have any actual connection with any authority figure or agency or anything like that. So no one's going so far as to say that Putin, for example, ordered hackers to take down airport web pages. Uh, And I'm guessing that that's not the case. I I don't think Putin would have done that simply because it's not an effective way to really disrupt things. In fact, the airport websites that were affected had no impact on actual travel whatsoever, which isn't a surprise. I mean, I don't think I have ever pulled up the Atlanta airport's website. Instead, I rely upon whichever air carrier I'm using I, I use their webpage or their app. I don't go to the airport's webpage itself. So this sounds like it was, you know, barely an inconvenience in some ways. Many of the sites were back up by late morning, so that really shows that it wasn't a very effective attack. Um, it was just a temporary disruption. The hackers reportedly used a DDoS or distributed denial of service attack on these sites. Those tend to be fairly superficial sorts of attacks. They can be effective. Um, particularly if you have your website hosted on a service that doesn't have good DDoS protection on it. But it's a temporary effect. It's not like something more insidious, like breaching a system. It's nothing like that. It's just really shutting down traffic to that website temporarily. So I'll be chatting more about DDoS attacks a little bit later this week. That's a a preview. Uh, I've talked about them before but I have an idea for a themed set of episodes. So that'll be coming a little bit later. Also coming later will be another couple of news stories. But before we get to that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Delta Airlines has pledged to invest $60 million in startup Joby Aviation, which is in the electric air taxi business. That's going a pretty far away. It's not really a business yet, Uh, but that's what they're developing is is electric air taxis. Uh, Delta also said that should the project hit certain milestones uh, in, in a certain amount of time, the company might up that investment as high as $200 million. Uh, Joby has created electric vehicle takeoff and landing vehicles, uh, this VTOL vehicles, V-T-O-L, or E-V-O-T-L in this case, because they are electric. They look like really large drones, like kind of like quadcopter drones, but they're big enough to hold people and luggage in them. The model mentioned in Andrew J. Hawkins' article about this, which was published on The Verge, uh, can hold up to five people. And the idea is to create a home-to-airport service. But I maintain that's actually a misleading phrase because these EVOTL vehicles are going to need a lot of clear space in order to land and take off from them. I mean, they're still going to be able to do this vertically. So not as much space as like an airplane would need, but essentially the same kind of space that a helicopter would need in order to land and take off. So, you know, they're going to need what what folks are calling vertiports, these these small cleared areas where these vehicles can operate, very similar to helicopter takeoff pads, right? It's going to be the same sort of thing as that. It might be on the top of a building. It might be in an otherwise cleared area, but it can't just be anywhere. You're not going to see one of these things 
pull up right outside your home. So it's not like you step out the front door, walk down the driveway and jump into one of these flying air taxis. That's not how it's going to work. Instead, you're going to have to head to the nearest vertiport to catch your ride to the airport. So I think calling it home to airport is misleading. I just don't think that's a good way of describing this because you do still have to go somewhere else. And depending upon the distribution of vertiports, it might not really be that effective of a way to reduce the amount of time it takes for you to get to an airport. Maybe it will. Also, we don't know how much it's going to cost. We don't know where it's going to be available, although Los Angeles and New York are likely to be the first cities to use these kind of things. Moreover than that, you know, we've, we've got that sort of element that we have to factor with. But one that's even more important is that federal agencies have to create certifications and approval processes for these kinds of vehicles. And that has not happened yet, right? You're not going to have the FAA just allow unlicensed or uncertified electric vehicles to fly through airspace. That's not going to happen. And no company so far has had its its air taxi kind of vehicle receive any kind of certification from these agencies. So there's a lot of legal process to get through. It's not just technical, although there are other technical challenges too, like how do you scale up production so that you meet demand? If it turns out there's enough demand where this company is going to need to mass produce these vehicles, how does it do that? It's very different from producing a single one. So there are a lot of unanswered questions and there are a lot of things that have to fall into place before we ever see air taxis being used, um, you know, in, a, in an official consumer way. So Delta is pledging money into something that could eventually mature into a useful service, but we're still a good ways out from that because we have all these other steps that have to take place first. CNBC reports that the Biden Labor Department has released a proposal today that could require regulators and courts to reclassify gig workers as employees. Uh, Right now, the going standard in the United States is to classify folks who work in the gig economy as independent contractors. Uh, And that has pros and cons on the workers' side. One of the pros is that independent contractors have a lot more freedom to define their own hours so they can hop on and hop off of work at, at very flexibly at their own schedule. But on the flip side, employers can treat independent contractors very different from employees. They don't have to, for example, uh, provide health benefits to independent contractors. So that's one of the big downsides for people who work in the gig economy. Uh, They can be heavily exploited and receive very little protection in return. Uh, They might not get overtime pay. They might not be allowed to form a union. There are a lot of downsides from the employee side. So there's a possibility that in the future we'll see uh, a federal level rule put into place where companies like DoorDash and Lyft and Uber uh, will not be able to classify their workers as independent contractors. They'll have to treat them as employees. That would be a massive change to their business model. Uh, It would likely mean we'd see prices go up 
for a lot of these services because the company's going to pass that that cost on to us, the end consumer. And honestly, we don't know how many of these would even just fold up and go away as opposed to trying to work within that system. Um, I think ultimately, from a personal opinion standpoint, this is a good move. I really want to, I always want to see more protections for the people who are doing the work. Uh, I'm not as concerned for the people at the top who are benefiting from the exploitation of their workforce, not really losing sleep about their, <laughs> uh, how much take-home pay they get at the end of the day. I really worry more about the people who are actually doing all the the labor. So uh, I just don't know what happens if this rule goes into place. Like, I don't know if those models hold up under those sets of rules or if we'll actually see them all kind of collapse in on themselves because the only way they can exist as a business is through being able to exploit the labor force the way it does. Uh, If it turns out that's the way, I would argue that says that business is not a great one for us to support because we shouldn't be exploiting people to that level. But I'm also in a position of privilege, and I understand that. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that my point of view is the right one or the only one or anything like that. It's just kind of how I come at things. Anyway, these are just proposed sets of rules. Nothing has been enacted. Nothing's been voted on. uh, And it may never come to that. But it is interesting that we're seeing movement on that front. Finally, I wanted to mention that Artist Ashley Zielinski has created a gallery of art that is based on and inspired by images taken by the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, These include three-dimensional physical sculptures. That includes things like lasers that create different images within a foggy environment and uh, some exhibits that require visitors to, to don a virtual reality headset in order to see virtual uh, exhibits, all of which are, again, inspired by these images created by the James Webb Space Telescope. And I just think that's a really interesting idea. Uh, I think that that creates this super cool experience to kind of encounter the scientific data, but in a completely different context, right? You're not looking at it as just a flat image. You're not looking at it as numbers on a chart. You're not looking at it as statistics. You're looking at it as an interpretation of that data. And um, I think that's a super cool idea. It's in New York City's ONX studio. And uh, so I'm, I have not seen it. I don't live in New York, so I, I'm not, it's not convenient to me, but I would love to visit it because it just sounds like such a interesting approach to taking something that is Uh, more abstract and not as accessible for most of us and turning it into something that could have potentially a really emotional impact on you. Um, I just love these ideas of artists taking inspiration from these scientific endeavors. Of course I say that because I have a tattoo on my back that was part of an art project for NASA. So, (laughs) so I, I'm, I am a canvas for that kind of an art project. Um, in fact, we shot a video of forward thinking where I was getting the tattoo as I was delivering the, the episode on camera. So that's an experience I never thought I would have when I was a kid, but I got it. So that was kind of cool. 
anyway, I just thought that it was a, an interesting concept. If you are in New York City and you can go to ONX Studio and check this out, uh, let me know what you think because I'm curious. I, I would love it to be like a really awesome, impactful experience. Uh, obviously, with art, such a personal thing. One person might walk out saying, my life has been changed forever. And the other person could walk out saying, I could have done something else with those two hours of my time. It's very individual in that way, but I am very curious about it. So that's how I wanted to end this episode was talking about that. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out. You can download the iHeartRadio app for free, navigate over to Tech Stuff, use that microphone icon, leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length, or reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 